0: Hey everyone! Thank you again for joining me on the BIPOC Outside Podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell and today we're sitting down with Vasu Sajitra. Vasu is a multi-sport adaptive athlete, a professional skier, a disability and inclusion strategist, and a climate change advocate. So let's get into it, shall we? Thank you so much for joining us today. So let's Let us jump right into it. You're originally from Connecticut. What was your introduction to snow sports?
1: Yeah, so I was born in Connecticut and around nine months, my leg was amputated. So we moved back to where my parents are originally from and then uh, moved back to the States to have better access to medical equipment, prosthetic legs and crutches and all that kind of stuff. And around seven is when we moved back when I was seven. And then when I was around 10, me and a few neighborhood kids, we were living in uh, apartment complexes in Connecticut, decided we wanted to go try snow sports here at, at the local Ski Hill about an hour or so away at Ski Sundown. So we tried to convince our parents to take us. Of course, it's a little pricey, so they were pretty reluctant, but yeah, they finally were letting us. So three of us, me, my brother, and the mutual friend decided to go skiing, or at least my brother decided to go snowboarding decided to go skiing and I didn't really have an option other than to go skiing because adaptive snowboarding I didn't even know was a thing until you know I started learning about it but um yeah started getting into snow sports that way and then on my first day was in ski school instructor wasn't fully aware of how to instruct adaptive skiers so me and my brother dipped out of that class and then uh just decided to ski around falling all the time kind of like typical, you know, first-time skiers. I was lying in the snow down like a green run and another one-legged skier was riding that day and he came up to me and just told me to keep going. Then he like rode off, which is really coincidental for the first time ever in a small ski hill in Connecticut. Yeah. So it was kind of fate to a certain point. So uh, yeah, you know, kind of dipped into what he was using and started researching that online, looking into what adaptive sports in general were. to convince my parents to get me that equipment which slightly worked out Tried to get cheaper equipment at ski swaps and ebay and all these other options that you know can help cut the prices down so yeah did a lot of that our school our high school had a ton of subsidized ski outings to vermont so me and my brother always decided to go on those and started falling in love with vermont So then decided to go to school in Vermont. So that kind of snowballed into, yeah, skiing all the time because of that access to the ski hills a little bit closer.
0: Amazing. So the age at which where you first started learning to ski, that's also the age that you stopped wearing your prosthetic.
1: That is correct, yes. So I wore my prosthetic from early childhood to the age of 10. And then after that, I kind of just picked up a lot of different sports, skateboarding being one of them, and then skiing being another And prior to that, I was always playing soccer. So those were kind of the three that I always did.
0: Let's talk a little bit about language. And I know you don't speak for everyone, just like I don't speak for my whole community, but is adaptive athlete the generally accepted term? Or is disabled still a term that we're we're using and that we're accepting?
1: Yeah, so I personally don't view disabled as a negative word or as a bad word. A lot of others might, and that's totally fine. But I've gone through my own process to understand why and You know, I mostly view the aspects of our community and our world that are inaccessible, that put stigmas onto people with disabilities. So that's my um, interpretation of it. And then, yeah, usually it's either, you know, person with a disability, disabled person, kind of specifying maybe their disability. So a wheelchair user, person with one leg, a medical aid user, someone with Down syndrome, someone with autism. You know, it really depends on community. The autistic community does like identity first, like the blind community or deaf community they all like identity first because it is a sense of pride. So kind of trying to focus on that as well of like, you know, I'm a disabled person and that's totally okay. And the aspects of life that are, you know, supposed to have the stigmas or supposed to have the negative connotations are the inaccessible options in our lives. So, you know, whether it's our schooling or a medical industry or our care providers that might not have the resources to care for a lot of folks with disabilities or mental illnesses. So any of these barriers that, you know, many folks with disabilities run into. So I I always view, you know, as long as there's gonna be humans around, there's gonna be disabled humans around. It is part of the human diversity and human ecology. So I think focusing on things that make it inaccessible can help break down those barriers and reduce those stigmas.
0: Yeah. So you're in Bozeman now. What brought you to Montana? Skiing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Brought me to Montana. Yeah, I I moved here when I was 23. One of my friends really wanted to move, close friends really wanted to move out here. So decided to move out here with him and then a pack of us from Vermont followed. So we all lived together and started building our own little community and skiing all the time and, you know, getting out. Montana's definitely got a lot of accessible spaces, at least trails and ski areas and backcountry skiing and all that kind of stuff so that was kind of a cool eye-opener to the west for me and my friends so stuck around started working at an adaptive program here in bozeman called eagle mount bozeman and worked there for about six years providing and working with the disabled community here in bozeman and surrounding areas and providing them opportunities in the outdoors whether it's skiing or kayaking or biking or rafting so we were I was running helping run that as one of their directors so i stuck around a bit longer than I expected and then yeah been here ever since.
0: Nice so big question what do you think has been your best day on the snow so far?
1: I guess I've had plenty of them but one that really sticks out to me was when I was working at Vermont Adaptive at Sugar, kind of was a big paradigm shift for me where I was on a lesson with another instructor and they were tethering an individual down the ski hill to keep them in control and turn and stop. And we were mostly just going down a green run. You know, most people would think it's like a green run that takes people back to the lodge kind of thing. This individual that was being tethered was having pretty much the time of his life. He was hooting and hollering, arms were waving and just like, you know, smiling and shining bright kind of thing. And, uh, And I was kind of like breaking it down in my brain as I was on this lesson, I'm like, you know, it's not really about, let's just say like skiing or, you know, the sport itself, but it's about the feeling we get from these activities. And, you know, as I started learning more and more about disabilities, like a lot of people with disabilities just aren't able to experience that joy that frequently. So, you know, being able to provide that as either an instructor or someone in leadership to someone that might have that access was Definitely a massive eye opener. And it also shifted my idea around what skiing was for me too, where I do very much enjoy skiing, no fall zone lines and tight coulars and big open faces and climbing mountains and stuff. But on the other end of that spectrum, I find the same amount of joy taking a new skier out and sharing what I love to share in the mountains with someone else that might not have experienced that before, whether it's someone with a disability, person of color, someone from a different marginalized community, you name it, you know, that's kind of, it's just the balance between the two different hats, different, different energies, different vibe, you know, but all in all, it's still just creating a sense of a feeling that can feel for me, at least embodying of why I love this sport.
0: I love that. I love that. Going back to your time at Eagle Mount, what was your philosophy or what is your approach to creating open and accessible spaces for young adaptive athletes?
1: Yeah. So the biggest thing is being adaptive. (laughs) We don't (laughs) just say the people that we're working with are adaptive, but the entire program itself is incredibly adaptive where we just have to be flexible with time with the resources we have, the equipment that we might have, the communication style that we use, the body language, all of it is what's encapsulated under this adaptive umbrella. And that was definitely embodied at Eagle Mount, at all of these programs that I get to really gratefully visit and have the privilege of visiting. But yeah, it's its not just adaptive as an adaptive person or person with a disability, but the program in itself is incredibly flexible and adaptive
0: i like that you've spoken before about having to build or adapt your own gear do you want to talk to me a little bit about that
1: yeah definitely so i went to school for mechanical engineering which i provided some sort of pride for my parents because i was an (laughs) engineer but then i decided i didn't want to do that anymore so that might have not helped but you know it, it definitely had created this mindset in my brain that Like there's these issues and there's also solutions to them, whether they're physical, like the equipment that I make or mental or cognitive when it comes to the adaptive sports world, there are ways to finding solutions as long as we work together. It was really cool that, you know, me and a few friends at our University of Vermont outing club put our heads together to figure out how to get me into backcountry skiing. And it really worked out super well to where, you know, I still use the same, piece of gear to this day. So yeah, really cool to be able to, you know, again, work together collectively to solve an issue or problem to expand what this sport can mean for people.
0: What, what changes are you seeing or what would you like to see from the outdoor gear industry to create more accessibility?
1: So I would love to bridge the gap, not just me particular, but there's other athletes that are really doing this well. But we'll bridge the gap between the adaptive sports world and the mainstream snow sports world it's slowly happening with folks like Trevor Kennison and Jay Raw. But, you know, it's definitely necessary because there are hundreds of adaptive sports organizations around the country around this continent, specifically Canada as well. But a lot of them don't get highlighted as much as the mainstream ski world. So. Really hoping to start bridging that gap between the two, because there are so many badass humans that are either in leadership or, you know, athletes or volunteers that are giving their hearts and souls to these programs. So I would love to, you know, share a little bit about that. Not me in particular, but, you know, just storytelling, share those narratives as much as possible. And as for gear, you know, there has been a big push through the Paralympics for snow sports to keep creating amazing gear for adaptive athletes. So that's been super cool to get people out from mono skis to outriggers, to snow sliders, to tethers, to, you know, all these different ways that we work with people with varying disabilities. So that's been amazing to see. I think the next iteration is going to be clothing. Trevor Kentnessen, again, dropped a line with Eddie Bauer, which is really cool, specific to mono skiers. And, you know, slowly working with North Face to be able to provide that as well for not just, again, monoskiers or athletes with one leg, but any kind of disability, a form of universal design that can work not just for one specific person, but for everyone. So that's the, at least the realm that I really want to push into just because I have so many connections in the industry. I am a co-founder of what is called Inclusive Outdoors Project Mm -hmm. here in Montana, here in Bozeman. And that's more of a... I don't know, we'd say like regional programming. We're mostly getting people from like the Pacific Northwest, Idaho, Colorado, Utah, Montana, Wyoming. We have gotten people from Philly and Boston and stuff, but you know, it's just a little bit harder to travel out here. But that focus for Inclusive Outdoors Project is to provide affinity spaces within the mountain sports community. So, you know, affinity spaces, so intersectional spaces from adaptive to BIPOC to queer and LGBTQ two-spirit plus communities and whether it's you know separate programming or intersecting programming depending on you know again how much how many people sign up but yeah that's kind of the idea and we provide activities that many of these more you know organizations that I've worked with might not have or not, might not be interested in providing so we're mostly focused on things like ice climbing and mountaineering and backcountry skiing and more technical rock climbing. So those are those are kind of the, the branches that we're trying to push into and trying to push into it in this intersectional manner that we're not just only focusing on one population, but pretty much all marginalized populations that might have been historically excluded from the outdoor space. Wow. Yeah, it's a little more complex. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, myself as being a person of color and also being an adaptive athlete and um, a pro athlete in that sense. And then my co-founder, Sophia Bilski, being a queer non-binary person, you know, we put our heads together a lot and just try to figure out different ways we can create this intersectional programming because our friendship, our friendship in itself is intersectional. So uh, we're always trying to share resources and education and just make ourselves a little bit more aware of a lot of the issues that might be impacting each other's communities. So that's been incredibly helpful and has definitely grown my understanding of not just, you know, the adaptive world or the BIPOC world, but also the queer world and the non-binary world and, you know, the two-spirit world and all these worlds that are outside of my bubble. So really cool, of course, very uncomfortable because I don't know about it, but it's cool to push that button more and more and feel more comfortable in those spaces.
0: But it's important to have these uncomfortable conversations.
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, acknowledging is definitely the first step to anything, any kind of growth.
0: You'd mentioned you're with the North Face, and you are the first adaptive pro athlete sponsored on the North Face roster. And this last ski, or this ski season that we're still in, you had two really big films come out. I kind of want to talk about them in reverse order so first with the approach on the out of bounds podcast you said the revolution will be relational and it kind of felt like the community vibe on the approach seemed to exemplify that tell me about working on that film
1: yeah that was super cool so again my concept in my brain is to make sure everything is mainstream and not in our own little bubbles or tribes or whatever word that we start using that appropriates it but uh, yeah, my idea is to make sure that the media where cre- I'm creating or taking part in is full on mainstream working with sponsors and communities that are being elevated on a higher platform. So that's kind of the idea behind the approach. And that was cool. Cause it again, incorporated so many different intersecting identities, not all of them, of course, that's just really difficult, doable, but very difficult and based on the budget we had of course maybe that was the biggest hurdle but definitely had you know multiple adaptive athletes from sit skiers to myself who's a stand up skier with one leg and a lot of women of color black riders um black women i was the only dude so that was kind of funny <laughs> and coincidental i mean i tried to get off the project multiple times but they kept pulling me back in so i finally caved and said yes so um but really cool to be able to work with the team and just, you know, more so just like create this representative media that like, you know, when we work together, when we show up together, really magic can happen and we can create it and make people feel welcomed and through our voice and our narratives and our ability, we can, we can showcase that. So that, that was kind of the biggest idea behind it. And it's just shows like there's rad people out there from all walks of life. So it doesn't have to be the same old, same old stuff we've seen in in the snow sports industry.
0: Totally. The second film that I want to talk about, which actually came out first is your baby Ascend. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of your Ascent Descent of Mount Moran, which is also the first adaptive descent. What was the impetus for this project?
1: Yeah. So I made a film about 10 years ago that kind of put me on the map and put one of the producers on the map. And I, you know, look back at it. I'm like, oh, that was a great film to get the foot in the door kind of thing. And after that, I was like, I need to make something better. So me and the producer, his name's Tyler Wilkinson Ray, put our heads together um, and we're like, all right, cool. Like, what's the bigger objective now? Like, I personally wanted to ski the Grand, but filming on the Grand is very heinous. And it will happen one of these days for me, but we decided to do Mountain Ran just because we can bring in a bigger production team. It's still a pretty prolific mountain. It's massive ski line. It's a 50 classic technically, so decided to go for that. And more so the idea behind it was one, talking about what it feels like to be a marginalized person in the snow sports world, and then also elevating color and marginalized folks within that film. So folks like Emily uh, Zenobia and Zahan Belmoria, who are the only people in front of the lens showcasing, again, folks of color doing these really rad things and disabled folks doing these really rad things. And then my my input within this film was that it had to be majority minority led so pulled in director faith briggs who is a close friend of mine and tyler jumped into the role as an assistant camera he's he's a white man but he really understands a lot of this work and needing to do this work so always wanting to get allies involved as well and then other folks like Sophia jaramillo who did a lot of the photography at the base camp and the intro or the the approach to Moran base camp and then folks like Claire Miyamoto and Ryan Miyamoto who did the graphic design and editing. So all these, you know, folks of color and marginalized voices that I pulled into leadership to make sure that again our voices were heard and not being drowned out by the I guess the more greater narrative of the outdoor world. So that was the, that was the biggest push for me to make Mm -hmm. sure that was going to happen.
0: It's interesting when you watch it because it's it's just a beautiful film. Cinematography, just the whole aesthetic of the film is gorgeous. But I found like as a person of color myself, I found it so much more meaningful. And I went back and watched it a second time when, you know, learning that people from communities of color, the BIPOC community, the queer community, the disabled community, their voices were prioritized and privileged in all aspects of the filming, not just in front of the camera.
1: I mean, it is definitely a deeper conversation and people definitely love that part. I feel like people definitely have to watch it multiple times to really, you know, gain a better understanding of what we're bringing up, you know, as you were saying. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is very complicated. It's very nuanced. But that's kind of, again, where I'm at with any of this marketing and media is like we need to acknowledge these issues and how can we move forward with radical action or, you know, any kind of action to make sure that our communities are cared for. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And yeah, it, I did do believe it turned out to be a really beautiful film. Faith did an amazing job. Uh, the production company we worked with, Top Top Studios were amazing to work with. So yeah, every, everyone did a really great job into building what we wanted.
0: Nice. You're also a strategist with the Varna Group, the In Solidarity Project, which is the creator of the Outdoor CEO Diversity Pledge. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the pledge and, and what are you hoping to influence with your work there?
1: Yeah, I think they're mostly shifting over to the oath now. I think the pledge has kind of slowed down a little bit, but that'd be a better question for Teresa Baker. She's kind of the, the brainchild of all of these. But yeah, working closely with Folks at the Ivarna group kind of had to take a break during the winter, just because winter is kind of ridiculous for me, but uh, yeah, they've been great to work with primarily their focus is on environmental organizations, but they've also worked with a few outdoor brands as well. So that's great. And then in solidarity and uh, Teresa and everything Patagonia is doing and Jose Gonzalez and Gabacha, um, always connecting with them and trying to brainstorm different ways of pretty much breaking down the outdoor industry a little bit more into being more inclusive. So yeah, super great to be able to work with them, doing some you know, strategy work behind the scenes with random companies, doing workshops and presentations whenever the time fits. So most of my focus is on disability and access, but within this intersectional lens that predominantly people of color, queer folks, trans folks, non-binary, native, black, indigenous folks are the ones that are mostly impacted by inaccess. And when we start focusing on not our identities per se but the barriers that we run into and the in excess we have to these opportunities then we'll start really figuring out solutions to these issues and ways to again care for these communities for our communities so that's that's kind of my focus is like yes racial justice yes you know for me like racial justice doesn't equal disability justice but disability justice does equal racial justice at least that's in my brain because disability justice always focuses on access and care. And when we again provide access to the most marginalized people, we provide access to everyone. So that's that's kind of the idea behind it all.
0: Okay. You've called the snow sports industry extractive. What did you mean by that and how do we change it?
1: Yeah, I figured I would probably call it that. I can't remember when I called it that. I mean, it is, a lot of it is based around consumerism every year. So you have to buy new clothes and new gear and you know, companies are coming out, the, coming out with the brighty, like brightest and shiny, shiniest things. So it's like, all right, like, how can we slow that down and make sure we're not just constantly like consuming all these goods that take a lot of energy to produce in the first place, from shipping to making them in predominantly in global South countries to, you know, the resources, the, you know, petroleum products that go into it. So it's like, All of these things start like really encapsulating the whole supply chain. So I'm like, all right, how can we reduce that and still provide some sort of, you know, growth for the individuals that are working for these companies in an equitable, equal manner. So, you know, work in progress. I think as these companies start learning about how to be inclusive, how to provide access to different opportunities and resources, I think slow and steady, people will start really feeling less extracted or less used or less commodified or whatever the word you may want to use and more cared for and more, you know, within the community of the outdoors and really enjoying where they work instead of feeling again, used and extracted.
0: Well, and participation in that, you know, that commodification of the sport is not, it's not accessible to everyone.
1: No, no I mean, exactly. Yes. Yeah, no sports is incredibly expensive. Those barriers to entry are incredibly expensive. I'm very grateful that my parents were able to invest in me and my brother to take part in these activities. Um, But, you know, I know a lot of people don't have that same opportunity, same cultural connection, same ways of getting yourself to the hill, same kind of mentorship, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, everyone lives a very complicated life on different narratives. But I think if we start looking at these you know, barriers more so and focus on that and focus on making all these spaces more culturally relevant to a lot of communities. I think it can definitely help break down the stigma that these are white sports.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 And are you seeing any initiatives outside of the initiatives that you're working on that are positively moving the needle in the direction of cultural revolution? Rev- Valence, wow
1: yeah yeah i mean of course there's hundreds of different programs out there which is amazing from bipoc led to indigenous led to black led to women led to women of color led so it's like i love them man they're just popping up everywhere which is awesome impacting more and more of our community and hopefully in a positive manner you know that's kind of the idea so yeah super cool to see a lot of that i think you know again the revolution is going to be relational but it's also going to be in Not just one succinct manner. I think it's going to happen in various different forms from people that are working internally to the folks that are loud and proud on, on the fringes to, you know, the pro athletes that are becoming louder and louder to the leadership that's becoming louder. So like all of it, I think will be a big part of the equation when it comes to um, providing this cultural shift within the industry.
0: Totally strengthen numbers.
1: Mhm. Yeah, and also, you know, I also think activism shouldn't look one specific way. I think artists can be activists in their own work. I think athletes can be activists. I think CEOs can be activists. I think taxi drivers can be activists in their own manner, you know. So like it, it it's pretty much what you make of it and how it impacts our communities.
0: Yeah. Speaking backwards to the snow sports industry, What changes would you like to see them prioritize?
1: I think I would love to see more focus on resources being pushed into the communities that have been historically excluded. So redistribution of resources, pretty much a form of, I don't like using this word too much, but a form of reparation in some sort of way to a lot of communities that have always been excluded intentionally, I would say. So I think that would be the biggest way to get. Uh, a bigger cultural shift happening faster.
0: So in your free time, which I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of, you're also an advocate with Protect Our Winters. And you know, you're not just a professional winter athlete. Like you said, at the University of Vermont, you studied engineering and you had a focus on green energy and green design. Mm -hmm. How does the convergence of those experiences sort of shape your approach to climate activism, to sport?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't really look at helping humans and helping climate as anything different. I think it's all one and the same. We are part of the ecosystem. And, you know, again, as we provide better access to education, resources, opportunities for people, I think we're going to start creating a better and more welcoming world, not just for people, but for our four-legged friends and our trees and our uh, flora and fauna and everything in between. So that's kind of where my mind is at. I'm never separating any of these conversations from the climate conversation. I think it's all connected, interconnected in itself. Back in the day, I know humanity has disconnected itself from the climate connection, and that's just not the case. We're all in this together, regardless if we like it or not. So yeah, it's that's kind of where I'm at.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. What advice do you have for young folk who are wanting to get into the sport or who are just newly getting into the sport, particularly young adaptive athletes.
1: Yeah. I mean, as for adaptive, there are so many amazing programs out there. I know the first step is always the hardest or first push is always the hardest. So, you know, give it a try. It might, it will be uncomfortable, but lean into that discomfort. I think it's super important and a great learning opportunity for many of us. I know I was definitely very uncomfortable when I first started skiing and I also, didn't work with an adaptive program for over a decade. So which also prolonged my ability to become a better skier. I've definitely seen adaptive athletes that go through an adaptive program, become proficient skiers, one season, two seasons, three seasons out where it took me about a decade to actually learn how to ski myself. So, you know, these resources are out there. Adaptive programs are breaking down those, like, inaccessible issues that a lot of these communities run into. So yeah, potentially reaching out to them. They have really great programming, really great grant opportunities, You know, really great ways of learning and mentorship and all these things that we all talk about when it comes to barriers. So yeah, super cool to you know finally learn about it in college and then be in the industry, the adaptive sports industry for about a decade as well afterwards to really learn about it all.
0: You have a lot of folks who look up to you and I, I include myself in that camp. Who do you look up
1: to? Um, I actually look up to a lot of more so modern day revolutionaries and ones that have passed. So folks like Audre Lorde and James Baldwin and yeah, and Octavia Butler and all these folks that have been doing this amazing work for decades on end, Adrienne Mary Brown, all these folks that are technically not in the outdoor world, but a lot of their mindset and Connection is still centering humanity more than anything. So those are, those are the people that I really try to connect with as much as possible through their teachings and learnings and readings and everything like that. Yeah. Wow.
0: You've been doing a lot of media lately, a lot uh-huh. uh, podcasts, print, everything. What is the one question you've always wanted to answer, but no one's ever asked you?
1: So this is a very personal question I got asked when I was in college and i actually ask adaptive athletes this very often occasionally like with consent of course because it is very personal but i was skateboarding one day outside one of the dorms at UVM and a acquaintance comes up to me and asks me in you know a casual conversation hey basu do you do you dream with one leg or two legs and i i i was like kind of shook at the moment. And I was like, obviously, one leg. Yeah, yeah, one leg, because I've had one leg for pretty much 30 years now. And when I was in college for 20 years. So I was like, oh, that's a really unique question that you asked me. That's really cool. So I've started asking some adaptive athletes that like, hey, like, do you dream with your disability or not to see kind of their perspective and their reaction? And just like, maybe it's a little provoking to them to understand who they are as a person, because I feel like our dreams can teach us a lot about ourselves.
0: That's fascinating. I had never considered that. That's really Mm -hmm. interesting. Thank you. I
1: do ask folks with leg limb differences, the same thing. And they say one arm or one leg. And then I ask folks that have gone through traumatic experiences that have lost limbs. And they're like, actually, I dream with two arms and I dream with two legs. And I'm like, that's pretty wild to, you know, yeah, it's just pretty wild to me, the difference um, between these different populations certainly
0: incredible insight into a person to know that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they might not make assumptions, but it's still cool to just like understand where they might be at. I don't know.
0: So, so what does the future look like? What's the, what's the bucket list? What's the rest of the ski season? What's the future look like for you?
1: Well, first I'm trying to fix this pinky finger I broke. Yesterday. I was going to say,
0: I was, is that a um, cast you're wearing?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. I broke it yesterday. I punched a tree accidentally skiing around Bridger Bowl. But yeah, going into surgery, like a 30 minute quick surge. So that'll be fun. But I have a few projects lined up with Subaru and visit Montana and doing a follow-up with the approach film skiing around BC and up in Haynes, Alaska, and trying to really, hopefully this works out. I still haven't bought a plane ticket, but go to Chamonix and ski Mont Blanc with another adaptive athlete. So those are kind of on the list for this year specifically.
0: Amazing. This has been incredible. I can't thank you enough for your time. How do our listeners find you?
1: Most of my, I'm just very much mostly vocal on Instagram. I don't, I'm already obsessed with my phone. So I have to start reducing my usage on that, but I only stick to one, one outlet (laughs) at the moment (laughs) if they want to follow along from a distant land. But yeah, that's, that's my loudest way. And then also just I connect in person as much as possible with people.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And to all of our listeners, links will be available on the show notes to the episode. Vasu, again, thank you so much for your time. Yeah,
1: totally. Me. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me.
0: That is it for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Links on where to find Vasu are available on the show notes at BIPOCoutside.com. I hope you found this conversation as enlightening as I did. And if you did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of BIPOC Outside.